the internet has transformed humanity. The internet is the result of a long series of innovations from military, academia, business, and the open source community. In his book, How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone, Brian McCullough tells the story of the last 25 years of internet development through the lens of companies like eBay, Amazon, Google, and Apple. Whereas other books have focused on the trajectory of these individual companies, Brian explains how innovations in one company often lead to success in another. Without the lessons of Napster, we might not have Spotify. Without the trust model pioneered by eBay, we would not have marketplaces like Airbnb. Brian is also the host of the Internet History Podcast and the Tech Meme Ride Home Podcast. In the Internet History Podcast, Brian interviews entrepreneurs and engineers who were first-hand witnesses to the developments that led to our modern internet. This includes early employees at Amazon, Tesla, and theglobe.com. In his other podcast, The Tech Meme Ride Home, Brian gives a daily overview of the day's internet news. Through his podcasts about the internet's past and present, Brian has also accumulated an intuition about the future. Brian joins the show to discuss his book, The Art of Podcasting, and the historical lessons of technology. My voice is a little faded right now, but it was not during this interview, so my voice will be delightfully refreshed after this first advertisement break. Thanks for listening to Software Engineering Daily. DigitalOcean is a reliable, easy-to-use cloud provider. I've used DigitalOcean for years, whenever I want to get an application off the ground quickly. And I've always loved the focus on user experience, the great documentation, and the simple user interface. More and more people are finding out about DigitalOcean and realizing that DigitalOcean is perfect for their application workloads. This year, DigitalOcean is making that even easier with new node types. A $15 flexible droplet that can mix and match different configurations of CPU and RAM to get the perfect amount of resources for your application. There are also CPU-optimized droplets, perfect for highly active front-end servers or CI-CD workloads. And running on the cloud can get expensive, which is why DigitalOcean makes it easy to choose the right size instance. And the prices on standard instances have gone down too. You can check out all their new deals by going to do.co slash sedaily. And as a bonus to our listeners, you will get $100 in credit to use over 60 days. That's a lot of money to experiment with. You can make $100 go pretty far on DigitalOcean. You can use the credit for hosting or infrastructure, and that includes load balancers, object storage. DigitalOcean Spaces is a great new product that provides object storage. And, of course, computation. Get your free $100 credit at do.co slash sedaily. And thanks to DigitalOcean for being a sponsor. The co-founder of DigitalOcean, Moisey Uretsky, was one of the first people I interviewed, and his interview was really inspirational for me, so I've always thought of DigitalOcean as a pretty inspirational company. So thank you, DigitalOcean.
Brian McCullough, you are the host of the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast. You're the host of the Internet History podcast, and you're the author of How the Internet Happened. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. You make it sound like I'm a busy guy. Well, you're not doing them all at the same time, but you are a busy guy. So let's get into that busyness. You have lived through the dot-com boom and bust, and that experience was different for you than how books and media have portrayed the early internet. And this disparity between how the early internet was portrayed in books and media versus how you actually experienced it made you a little irritated, and this caused you to eventually write a book. What did the previous writers and commentary people about the internet, what did they get wrong about their histories of the internet? Well, you know, I would tweak that a little bit. I don't know that they got it wrong so much as when it was happening, there weren't a lot of books about it at the time. There was a lot of media, certainly media coverage of it. And it seemed to be like this sort of, gee whiz, what's this interesting new thing happening? So a lot of the earliest stuff sort of treats it as this sort of magic that no one's really sure is going to stick and, and and things like that. Well, obviously, we, you know, what, what has been more disruptive, like technology is in every little crevice of our lives now. So A, I wanted to do justice to that, like, okay, let's reassess, let's see how we got here. And then also, it is because, well, two part, I just turned 41, you know, a couple years ago, I, you know, when I would meet with young entrepreneurs, they'd, they'd be like, Oh, wow, dot com stuff. What was that like, you know, so like, I always say, you know, you live long enough, and the stuff that you actually were there for and remember becomes history. So I wanted, there's so many lessons about the birth of the modern tech era, that we're living through that I, I feel like have to be remembered, because they're so valuable for people trying to do startups trying to do tech today. But then the other thing was, is it just bothered me. There's been a bunch of, you know, Brad Stone had a great book about the history of Amazon and this company and that person, whatever. I feel like for normal folk, technology is just this thing that comes over them in waves. Like, what's this new thing? Should I be on this platform? Should I be, do I need this device in my life? You know, from from the opposite side of the fence, I felt like a lot of the coverage for mainstream people and history for mainstream people of technology, it's not something that's confusing. It's just an industry like any other industry. So I kind of also wanted to write the book from the sense, you know, I was thinking of my dad, like, here's how you got a supercomputer in your pocket. Here's why you know what your college roommate had for lunch. Here are the people that did it to you. And here's, here's why they did it the way they did it, you know? You limited the scope of the book to from Netscape to the iPhone. You could have done earlier things. You could have done later things. And then even in this span of time, there was so much that happened that you had to cut things out. You do cover milestone companies like eBay and Google and Amazon, but you had to cut some stuff. What were the biggest milestones you had to cut from the book? Actually, I fought hard to save a lot of the dot-com bubble frothy stuff, you know, the pets.coms and things like that. There was a lot of, you know, the publisher and my editor, they were sold on the idea of, well, here's the true story of how Facebook happened. Here's the true story of how Amazon happened and things like that. They didn't want some of the the companies that didn't make it. And I, I fought hard to preserve that. In terms of what I ended up having to cut out, it was more that I cut limbs or I cut fat off of the the larger stories, you know, because I could have gone into way more detail. If you listen to the early episodes of the Internet History Podcast, where some of those episodes are actually my first draft chapters 
of what eventually went into the book. And so a lot of what was lost there was more of the detail, which on the one hand, that's, it's great because all of that detail is still there if you listen to the podcast. But essentially what I had to lose was sort of the nitty gritty beat by beat, you know, year by year details. As And the book, it became more of telling the the overall arc and how each company contributed to how slowly technology and the web went mainstream in all of our lives. But then at the same time, that's what I learned, the interesting process of doing the book, because I've never written a book before. I'm not a journalist. I'm not technically a professional historian. I would find the actual narrative that I needed in the doing of it, right? So it wasn't that, well, first came Netscape and then came Yahoo. And then after Yahoo came eBay. So I got to do eBay next. I would discover in the process of doing it, what the real story was. What was the contribution that some of these big names actually made to, to mainstreaming technology? So like the, the story of eBay, I realized in the, in the telling of it is eBay trained us to trust strangers for the first time. eBay did things like create the first online reputation system that, you know, where would we have, where would Uber and and Airbnb be today without that? And then like, you know, I knew I was going to do stuff on Napster and and file sharing. And so you think, oh, well, I know that story. That's all about uh, piracy and things like that. Well, no, Napster was the first blow in the the first the first brick laid to the modern foundation of you know we live in an, in society today we expect unlimited selection and instant gratification if if you tell me about a book or a movie i expect that i should be able to like you know, start watching it within 30 seconds so it was more that i discovered the narratives that each company and each technology advanced to to get us to the modern day how does microsoft factor into the history of the internet Way more than I thought it would. Uh, the startups that I, I founded were mostly tail end of the dot-com bubble into the, the dot-com bursting aftermath. So mostly in the 2000s. And in that decade, Microsoft's infamous now lost decade where they sort of lost their relevance in the tech industry. So I, you know, by my own experience, I was like, well, n- Microsoft is almost a, a non issue and a non-player, especially when you talk about the modern era. Well, now it's back, of course. Now it's super relevant again. But what surprised me, maybe it wouldn't have surprised me if I was doing startups in 1994, 95, how much each and every company throughout the 90s, everything that was happening, everything that everyone was doing was in relation to Microsoft, was can we do this before Microsoft does it? If we do this, will Microsoft come kill us? It's hard from the perspective of 2019 to Microsoft is back. They're 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 they've been thriving, especially the last two or three years. But you can't imagine today how in 1994 Microsoft was the technology industry. There was Microsoft, this giant supernova, and then there was all these other little planetoids orbiting around Microsoft, hoping to survive in Microsoft's wake. So it was illuminating to look back at that time period. We think of the tech, you know, tech has has eaten the world now. Something like eight of the top 10 most valuable companies in the world are tech companies. There was only one in 1994, 1995. It was Microsoft. Microsoft was the whole ballgame. So it was interesting to, to realize and remember that that was the case. Microsoft was eventually scapegoated. The public turned against Microsoft, whether for good reasons or for not good reasons. And it has some parallels to today where Facebook is getting scapegoated. 
But what's different today is that there are more companies that could be scapegoated. And and to some degree, they are. I mean, you do see Amazon and Google and et cetera. Right. Well, Amazon right now today, the day we're recording this, you know, they basically have been chased out of New York <laughs> by pitchfork mobs. So Absolutely. But I think you would agree that Facebook has suffered the brunt. I mean, or maybe you wouldn't. I mean, do you think, do you have any reasons why I'm asserting that Facebook has been scapegoated more than other companies? Do you have any perception why that is? Well, I'm going to interject something real quick. In in the 90s, the general public did not really care about Microsoft because, again, tech was not in, in most people's lives, mainstream people's lives in a major way. The people that came after Microsoft that rallied the rallied the crowds against Microsoft were other people in the tech industry for the reasons that I just alluded to. Everyone was in fear of them and things like that. The difference now is that, well, Facebook is in everybody's lives. Google is in everybody's lives. Apple is in everybody's lives. That's the thing about, you know, telling the stories of these companies is that it's not just telling like some boring business history story. This is telling stories about companies that touch all of our lives in very intimate ways and and like every minute of every day. So to get to your Facebook issue, I think that the reason that Facebook is probably getting the lion's share of it is threefold. Number one, it's the one thing that I guarantee you, your grandmother, my grandmother, anyone in North America knows about where even they might not know that Google makes a phone or something like that, right? You know, so it's something that everybody can relate to. Number two, media people feel that Facebook and Google have eaten their businesses. So I'm not saying that there's a conscious axe to grind here, but there's probably some sort of subconscious or latent jealousy and anger on the part of media people, the people that are writing the headlines and, and doing the, the stories towards Facebook. But then third, look, you know, I on the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast, every other day, it seems I have to do another story about a Facebook scandal. You can say that people are out to get Facebook, but it's Facebook's fault to a large degree. And it's, you know, things that we can talk about, like their culture, the move fast and break things thing. But especially doing the daily podcast, I have basically come to the conclusion that a lot of Facebook's PR issues, but also business issues, they're, they're facing a multi-billion dollar FTC fine, it, it's looking like, are decisions that they made, things that they did to themselves that they didn't necessarily have to do the way that they do business doesn't have to be the way that they do business. Microsoft being a perfect example, Microsoft got into trouble for being incredibly rapacious and aggressive. It didn't have to be that way. Microsoft has changed its culture, changed everything about itself, and is, is as we've been saying, has found success again. So I think the third part of it is that it's it's Facebook's fault for doing things the way Facebook seems to want to do them. How are startups that are starting today different than startups that got started in the 90s? The most obvious thing is people know what they're doing now. <laughs> Not only in the sense that, you know, when the web was new, people didn't necessarily know what would work. Can it, it was an open question for years. Can you actually build a big business on this technology? Will e-commerce ever catch on? Will people be willing to do business on the internet? Will people be, you know? So early on, the difficulty was finding if there was a there there, if you're an entrepreneur. Number two, 
it was a lot more expensive. You know, we live in a world where if you have a great web idea or a great app idea or stuff, you can off the shelf do things that everything in the 90s had to be done from scratch. There's all sorts of open source. There's repository. There's you can be like Instagram famously was or, or, or WhatsApp famously was. You can be a team of a handful of people and have a billion users overnight and create a billion dollar company overnight because you don't have to do things like run your own server farm or, you know, um, oh, we need an e-commerce backend. Well, I guess we'll have to spend the next 18 months coding that together ourselves. All of the tools are there. And then back to the first point, people understand the idea. I, I think I, I mentioned this in the book. Being an entrepreneur, at least when I was growing up in, in the 70s and 80s and early 90s, was not a thing. We're used to the idea today of college kids coding up something in a dorm room and it being a billion dollar company. If you have an idea now, there are plenty of examples of, of people that came before you. There's a proven at least path of success that other people have have blazed a trail for. So that did not exist in the mid 90s, certainly. And then when the, when the bubble burst, it seemed like, oh, that door had shut. But now, you know, certainly the last 20 years, especially, if you have a good idea, you can see the path to bringing that great idea to fruition. No guarantees of success, of course, but at least there's obvious patterns for you to do it, patterns to follow to get you to success. One historical relationship that you explore in both the podcast and your book is the relationship between hardware and software innovations. So sometimes you have hardware innovations that enable new software paradigms. So like one example was the small hard drives that enabled the iPhone. And then other times you have software innovations that lead to new hardware paradigms. Like more recently, you have deep learning that leads to specific chips. Do you have any favorite anecdotes or episodes of the podcast that have been perhaps overlooked about the hardware and software dynamic? My personal favorite arc for that is the idea of mobile computing was obvious to everyone for a long, long time. The PC revolution happened in the 80s. And there were people in the 80s that were trying. To them, the next obvious step was, well, let's put a personal computer in everyone's pockets. And so some listeners might remember that Apple had its infamous Newton debacle. But there were a whole range of startups in the early 90s that I've alluded to as sort of like, it was a, a mini bubble before the dot-com bubble happened. You had companies like Go, General Magic. There was a, a whole mini boom in Silicon Valley, uh, you know, venture-backed startups that were all going to bring handheld computing to the fore. And it crashed and burned, and then the web happened, and then everyone forgot about that. But then there were also all these great people, like, of course, Jeff at Palm, and, and especially Palm, but then also the BlackBerry guys as well, that kind of hammered away at that idea. And it's a combination, it, this is not maybe fitting the software part of your question into it as much, but it was just the thing of, you know, we know this from technology, sometimes it's just too soon for something. So, you know, the Newton failed famously because it tried handwriting recognition that, well, hey, there you go, there's software that didn't work, <laughs> that they couldn't figure out. And then it took the iPhone to, to get, you know, uh, input paradigm for a, a handheld device right. But it was also too soon because, you know, you didn't even have 2G in the mid-90s. So you couldn't even do data, right? At much less Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi doesn't, you know, get ubiquitous until around 2000, 2001 to 2003. You didn't have the, the first consumer-grade digital cameras didn't come out till 98, 99. 
as you're talking about the hard drives and things like that. So it's funny because, and I've alluded to this, I think I said it on the A16Z podcast. I remember for years being told that, well, mobile internet is going to be a huge thing. Mobile video is going to be a huge thing. And I kept, you know, it's one of those things sort of like where AR is, or sorry, VR is today, where people have been telling me that for so long that I get jaded and just roll my eyes when I hear it now. But then boom, man, the time was right. It was too soon, too soon, too soon. It's always too soon until the exact day that it's right. And then, man, Katie bar the door when that happens. We are all looking for a dream job. And thanks to the internet, it's gotten easier to get matched up with an ideal job. Vettery is an online hiring marketplace that connects highly qualified job seekers with inspiring companies. Once you have been vetted and accepted to Vettery, companies reach out directly to you because they know you are a high-quality candidate. The Vettery matching algorithm shows off your profile to hiring managers looking for someone with your skills, your experience, and your preferences. And because you've been vetted and you're a highly qualified candidate you should be able to find something that suits your preferences. To check out Vettery and apply, go to vettery.com slash sedaily for more information. Vettery is completely free for job seekers. There's 4,000 growing companies from startups to large corporations that have partnered with Vettery and will have a direct connection to access your profile. There are full-time jobs, contract roles, remote job listings with a variety of technical roles in all industries. And you can sign up on Vettery.com slash SEDaily and get a $500 bonus if you accept a job through Vettery. Get started on your new career path today. Get connected to a network of 4,000 companies and get vetted and accepted to Vettery by going to Vettery.com slash SEDaily. Thank you to Vettery for being a new sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. You know, there are all these patterns that you see if you study the last 20, 30 years of internet technology, and then you'll see them recur even if you, if you go further back in history. One area that I can't really pattern match to history is the world of podcasting. And, um, you know, I, I really felt like in the last couple of weeks with this the Spotify acquisition, we saw history in the making to some degree. And I would love to get your your evolved take on that now that we've had, a, you know, a couple of weeks to digest it or one week, I don't even remember. But the strangest thing about that, or one of the strangest things is that Apple had control over the podcasting market for so long. They had complete dominance. And it seems like they, and they still conscious- do. They still do to a large degree. They're just letting it. They slip still away. do. Yeah. Well, but are they letting it slip away, or are they like making a conscious decision that they don't want to go into that domain? Right. Seemingly, yes. And you know, I, I with Apple specifically, I, I said this specific thing on on the ride home just this week that things like you know the Euro purchase by Amazon, you know, Apple had airport. And Airport Express and Extreme and, all, and they, they they've seemingly let Apple TV wither on the vine. There's a lot of things, you know. Apple famously is a company that they they're almost prideful about the things that they say no to, 
But they're, you know, Siri being another example, the voice assistant market is, it is exploding and, and they had the early lead there. But others have caught up with them and are surpassing them and because maybe Apple hasn't followed through. To your point about podcasting, I don't know. On the one hand, I don't want anyone to take over podcasting because I love it that way. It reminds me of the open web. There are no platforms on audio right now. You know, if if you want to do video, you basically play on on YouTube's terms or and and that's the only game in town, right? But if you're an independent creator in audio right now, it's still the open web. It's just an RSS feed, man. No one can stop you from doing what you want to do. So on the one hand, I'm glad that Apple Podcasting is the way it is now because Apple has treated it with benign neglect, in a sense. But I would say you were talking about pattern recognition. This reminds me of something that I was there for, which was the birth of blogging as an industry. And what blogging eventually evolved into is essentially modern digital media. The the thing that we used to call blogs, gizmodos and, and gawkers and things like that, or you know, all of the people that, that started as bloggers and are now basically running, they're the faces you see on TV every day and, and running the voxes of the world and things like that. It reminds me so much of that ecosystem where there's a few early pioneers and people are, are moving the, the space forward and the industry forward and people are trying to professionalize it and, and monetize it and, and industrialize it in the sense that, you know, podcasting is still not even a half billion dollar a year industry. But at the same time, all podcasting really is, is radio. And radio itself is still a $20 billion a year industry, I think, in North America. So in the same way that all that happened is you used to have newspapers and, and magazines and and, and th- now you have all of these media brands and, and BuzzFeeds of the world. And all that's going to happen is radio is going to move to inside an app and inside a phone. And I think that that's what Spotify sees. And then there's the paradigm of all people care about, and 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 Daniel X said this in the in the earnings call or press release or whatever it was on the Spotify earnings announcement or um, spot the uh, the purchases of Anchor and Gimlet. All they really they want you to spend time in their app. It's like how Netflix says their main competition is Fortnite because what their business is is you spending time with them. There's no reason why audio can't be just as powerful and take up a certain amount of time of a person's day as video does. And so Spotify sees that. And so there's, I don't see why there's not as powerful a business opportunity in audio as there is in, in video. Ben Thompson, what key innovations has he brought to writing about technology and podcasting about technology? Well, the innovation is, is people have to come along and prove this every now and again, that you can be a, a one-man band or a, a tiny indie producer and developer. There's not been a flood of people that have been able to replicate Ben's model. There probably is a whole universe of them. It's just they're in tiny little niches that you and I are not aware of. And that's the, the, the beautiful thing. You can be a successful indie uh, publisher, producer, whatever you want to call it, if you're willing to carve out space in a, in a super targeted niche. So there's probably Ben Thompson's for, I don't know what kind of niche you can imagine, uh, you know, 
can't think of one right now at the top of my head. But what Ben does that no one else can do is Ben's the smartest MF there is, though, right? So there's not a universe of Ben Thompson's because there really can't be because there's not a universe of people that can think about tech as smartly as as he does. I mean, Horace Deju to a certain degree. Oh, you know, who know who's a perfect example of carving out a niche, carving out space in a, in a niche is like, you know, look at how successful John Gruber has been just covering Apple. And again, in a similar way, there's tons of people that talk about Apple, very few that do it as smartly as Ben does. And also, you know, daring, not daring firewall, but beyond Avalon does that for Apple as well. And it's sort of in the Ben Thompson model. But what Ben does that no one else can do is, is he, he can analyze the tech industry and industries in general in the Clay Thompson way of like, this is really smart. Here's, I can see, forget the forest for the trees. Like I can see what's really happening here. I don't think everyone can do that. So that's sort of what makes him unique. I assert that Jason Calacanis falls into this category also, and yet he seems to be tremendously misunderstood. What can we learn from Jason Calacanis? I don't know if you're aware. I had him on the Internet History Podcast once. I am aware. Great episode. Yeah, to, to tell, right, the whole the whole story of his career. Because, you know, I think I said this to him. You know, he's a hustler. He's a guy from South Brooklyn who is just going to hustle and make it and tells the story. In, in the most endearing sense of the word. A hundred percent. Oh, I'm not being pejorative at all. The man made his first business by literally mimeographing a magazine and like handing it and walking around Manhattan and handing it out and, and leaving it in places to this day where, you know, he's still doing, you know, podcasts every day. And, and you know, the email company that is inside, I think. I think that Jason's insight is what Jason does that's a little different than what other people do is he he wants to do the let a thousand flowers bloom thing. Like if he finds a good idea, he's like, well, why can't there be 10 of these? Why can't I replicate this a hundred times? You know, he did that with weblogs, which he sold in the early 2000s. So one of Jason's things is, is that like he doesn't, and this is to his credit, again, I'm not being critical about this. He has a great idea. It's, some people have a great idea and they laser focus on it. Jason has a ton of great ideas. And when he has one, he wants to try to apply it in 30 different arenas. And one of the reasons that that works for him is that that shotgun approach allows him to rapidly test ideas, rapidly iterate, and then basically figure out what, what's gotten traction and what works. And then, and then hopefully, all right, now let's do that and do that and do that. Repeat, re rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. So that's what's amazing about Jason to me. If we fast forward into the future 10 years and then we look back at medium.com, what trends in media will we be thinking that medium.com represented? Well, when medium came out, people were thinking this is a platform play. This is essentially we're going to put all of writing onto a platform like all the video has gone onto YouTube, right? I think that that misunderstands what it's becoming, which is it's becoming more of a public commons broadcast space. When Jeff Bezos wants to out the the National Enquirer for alleged uh, misdeeds, he owned the Washington Post. He could have done it there. I, I, I mean, there's some obvious probably legal reasons why he, he wouldn't have done it there. He could have issued a press release. He could have, he, he went and did it on Medium because there's something that Medium has Medium is is sort of like Twitter. You know, everyone complains about Twitter not ha having a character limit and things like that. I think what people have to understand is that Medium fits in the space between Twitter 
and say any of the other platforms like Facebook and, and YouTube and Instagram or whatever, in the sense that Medium is more of a place of record and a place where it's like, I have something important to say, I can put it on my website. And if I have lots of things to say, I might do my own website or I might do my own podcast or something like that. But if I have something to say that I want to get traction, I'm going to put it on Medium where at least built into Medium is the potential for virality. And there's a potential for virality on Facebook as well and the potential for virality, obviously, on Twitter as well. But for basically for standing up on a soapbox and being like, I'm going to have my rant. That's where Medium fits in. And then also it's, and this is not a small business, but it's a place for PR. There used to be, there still are wire services that, you know, make good money and stuff like that. But, but in a way, Medium has gotten the most traction as being de facto the PR wire service for modern companies. What is the most underrated attribute of Steve Ballmer? See, that's a tough question because I don't know that I have a lot of, I have no animosity towards Steve Ballmer. I don't know that I have a- What are, a, your, what are your reflections on the Steve Ballmer period as CEO of Microsoft? All right. If, I, if I'll make one criticism, and again, I personally find Steve Ballmer to be a charming man. And by the way, Microsoft was successful. If you look at the actual dollars and cents under Steve Ballmer's tenure, you know he basically quadrupled or something the size of that company while he was CEO. My criticism of him was that would be that he was too much of a team player, too much of a, a fan of his own team, and forgot that Microsoft was a software company or a technology company. And, and I mean this in the sense that he believed it was a Windows company. I think that one of the reasons that Microsoft had its lost decade was because he so he learned too well the lesson that's still applicable, which is, man, if you can create your own platform, like that's the key to unbelievable wealth and success and, and power and control. So he believed that Windows was that platform and he it blinded him to seeing how different paradigms were rising up and were making the platform that Microsoft had so successfully built completely irrelevant. So my criticism of him, I don't think he's a dumb man. I, I think he sees these, he saw these things coming. And Microsoft, to their, they were trying to do tablet computing since the early 2000s. They, they obviously knew this was coming, but I think that he was a little too myopic in trying to fit whatever new paradigm were coming into the existing platform that he had. When, again, it's the classic innovator's dilemma stuff. At some point, he had to make the decision to break his platform or to abandon his platform, to, to burn the boats, as it were, as Satya Nadella famously and explicitly did, and again, has at least thus far into his tenure had great success doing. You believe that the 90s internet bubble will not recur. Why not? Unfortunately, we live in a world where it's seemingly all we can do is run an economy that lurches from one bubble to another. What I mean when I say that is, it is unlikely that technology itself will be the thing that will essentially be the bubble. There will be bubbles in technology. There will be froth. There will be times when too much money is, is pouring into tech companies. But the point that I'm making is that the late 90s were a unique period in time where mainstream Americans were entering the stock market in large numbers for the, for the first time. And I don't have the book open in front of me, but there are data points in the book where you know, something like 80% or whatever of, of people that opened a 401k for the first time did so within a three-year window in the mid to late 90s. So the baby boomers being the largest generational cohort, 
of all time at that point, reaching their their peak earning years. All of this money flooding into Wall Street needs to go somewhere, needs to be invested in something. Just as an accident of history, the internet happens at that time. The All of the explosion, the Cambrian explosion of entrepreneurialism and companies chasing this new technology and trying to see if there is an industry and a, and a market here happens at that exact time. And so the fact that tech created a global recession, I feel like that's probably not possible anymore because tech is too diversified now. Tech is everything. Every industry is tech. So it's the, the thing that can't be repeated in the 90s is that it's not going to just be us in tech that blow up the world, or it's unlikely. To, I mean, it, supposedly we could create AI, killer AI that destroys the world or something. But I, I don't think that you can replicate the exact macroeconomic and financial conditions that were there in the dot-com bubble for lots of purely accidental historical reasons. Why did you publish your book through a conventional publisher rather than self-publish? That is an interesting question. Again, I think my initial, it's friggin' six years on from when I had this idea. My initial impulse was, I want this to be mainstream. I want this to be authoritative, right? Yes, I, I could have published a Kindle book or, or even like a, you know, a PDF book or something. And, and other tech nerds like me would have hopefully bought it and read it. But I wanted it to be in Barnes & Noble. I wanted it to be in airports because I wanted normal people to, again, get educated on what the tech industry really is and what technology really is and what it really is doing to our lives and how it did that, right? So, you know, I've got nothing against indie publishing, but I, I, I guess the impulse was that it would give it more a sense of credibility. It would, it would make it more mainstream and, and hopefully, you know, be authoritative. The Bloomberg story about the tampered potential servers that was basically debunked. Do you think this is going to be historically significant as a, a really big black mark against Bloomberg or against conventional media outlets, or is it completely insignificant? I don't think, certainly it should be any sort of a knock on mainstream media outlets, because, you know, let's let's be honest about it. There are thousands of journalists out there, and some of them either a make mistakes or you know there are famous examples throughout history of you know actual people making stuff up what's that movie about that one guy that fooled the the new republic or whatever that Hayden Christensen was in it's actually a good movie even though he's not proven to be a very good actor but shattered glass so i would say look it's not it's not a good look for bloomberg it's not a good look for those reporters and we might never know the real story behind that because there's something that tells me that there's some kernel of truth there that either they fumbled or got wrong. There's some reason why that the truth of that might never come out. But at the same time, it certainly does not look like they got it right. And so, hey, listen, I do a, a tech, a daily tech news show where I have to read headlines every day and decide what I think is the important stories. And those particular reporters, you know, I causes me to think twice about their reporting. And, 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 but that's the point is that that can happen is like, you can have certain venues have credibility issues, you can have venues make mistakes. And so then, you know, but even as a, a news consumer, you're free to make those evaluations. 
darn, I really loved this this reporter, even this magazine. They've they've been so good for years, but man, they've gotten bad over the last couple of years, and I don't trust them the way I used to. Like the ability to discern that just means that you're a sophisticated consumer of news, and and we all should. How do you know what it's like to use your product? You are the creator of your product, so it's very hard to put yourself in the shoes of the average user. You can talk to your users. You can also mine and analyze data. But really understanding that experience is hard. Trying to put yourself in the shoes of your user is hard. Full Story allows you to record and reproduce real user experiences on your site. You can finally know your users' experience by seeing what they see on their side of the screen. Full Story is instant replay for your website. It's the power to support customers without the back and forth, to troubleshoot bugs in your software without guessing. It allows you to drive product engagement by seeing literally what works and what doesn't for actual users on your site. Full Story is offering a free one-month trial at fullstory.com slash sedaily for Software Engineering Daily listeners. This free trial doubles the regular 14-day trial available from fullstory.com. Go to fullstory.com slash sedaily to get this free one-month trial. And it allows you to test the search and session replay from Full Story. You can also try out Full Story's mini integrations with Jira, Bugsnag, Trello, Intercom. It's a fully integrated system. Full Story's value will become clear the second that you find a user who failed to convert because of some obscure bug. You'll be able to see precisely what errors occurred, as well as the stack traces, the browser configurations, the geo, the IP, other useful details that are necessary not only to fix the bug, but to scope how many other people were impacted by that bug. Get to know your users with Full Story. Go to fullstory.com slash sedaily to activate your free one-month trial. Thank you to Full Story. There is a a phenomenon right now where we have all of these different media organizations that we can assemble information from. We have the New York Times, we have the Wall Street Journal, we have the Joe Rogan podcast, we have TechCrunch. And these organizations vary in their degree of, of unfilteredness, of unediteddness, and it becomes quite hard to know who should we be waiting? Uh, you know, who, who, how should we wait a conversation between Joe Rogan and Jack Dorsey that lasts for, for two and a half hours versus the New York Times writing about that conversation? How should we calibrate our balance of truthful weights that we put on these different media outlets? Well, but see, that's one of the things, and I'm I'm sort of in the minority of this, when people are gnashing their teeth about like, well, who can we trust? Like who has credibility and things like that? I actually think that 
it was a weird world where there were these sort of venues when when I was growing up as a kid that's like, well, you're you're going to trust CBS for sure. You're going to trust the New York Times for sure because they're CBS or the New York Times. That's a passive sort of lemming state of affairs that everyone's like, oh, the current universe of anyone can have a, a, a megaphone. Anyone can, there's no editors, there's no validation, there's no verification. I actually, I, I'd rather live in this world because that old world, that's a passive media relationship. That's a passive populace. Now, the problem is, is that because for several generations, we've been taught to be passive media consumers, it's not easy to just turn the switch and be like, listen, now you have to be an actively discerning consumer of media. I think what you're describing even in the the way you're framing your questions, I think you should always, I love Joe Rogan. I listen to the Joe Rogan podcast every single week, right? I, I love the fact that he he seems to be an intellectually curious, genuinely curious guy. He's a seeker, right? But you should, just because Joe, I love Joe and he's proven himself to me, that doesn't mean that I should ever shut off. I should always be skeptical. Like every single venue. So what you should do for all media is you should actively evaluate them, but then don't stop. So if if you're like, this venue has proven themselves to me to be reliable. I believe that they're um, accurate. I, I like their take. I like the way they do things. Fine. But then the problem is, is that when, when, when people talk about people going into their bubbles and you then, well, I'm only going to, some people are only consuming the news that validates their, their preconceived notions. That's because people shut off. So don't shut off. Like find a venue that you believe, find uh, find voices that you trust. But then once they've won your trust, that's not permanent. They have to earn it every single day, right? So the problem is, is that I think that we we don't, a lot of people are not used to and haven't been trained and don't understand how to be sophisticated, discerning media consumers. So just be smart about it. Be Don't be one of the lemmings. What company has had the most underrated impact on the development of the internet? eBay, 100%. I, I said this in a Inc. Magazine piece. Chris Dixon and I talked about it on the A16Z podcast. Because again, eBay is not a company that is in the tech headlines these days much anymore. They don't, they don't, they don't seem to you know, have impact on... No one's, no one's making decisions based on what eBay may or may not do versus what, you know, obviously with Facebook and Google and Amazon and, you know, you do. But the three things that eBay did that they deserve way more credit for, for laying the foundation of, of modern technology is A, they taught us to trust strangers online, which think of that, forget about it from a business perspective, think of it from a sociological, from a cultural perspective. Um, there was a time, and I talk about this in the book, for years, you, when they launched Amazon, they launched it as an email product. And most people were calling and reading their credit card numbers over the phone because they didn't trust putting their credit card numbers online. So eBay convinced a lot of people, my dad included, you know what? Not only is this internet thing worthwhile, because look, I can get the 1970s stereo equipment that I've been looking for for years now, but I can get it from a guy in Oklahoma whose name I'll never know, whose face I'll never see, and actual real commerce and and constructive things can happen with absolute strangers and with crowds of strangers. So that's number one. 
Number two, as I said, we, we live in the, the, the tyranny of the five-star rating system now, but the, the system of online reputation that eBay developed that allowed eBay to function well and was in fact one of their great competitive moats that allowed them to be successful. If they hadn't come up with that, again, I, the gig economy world, the idea that you're going to get in some stranger's car or, or sleep in some stranger's house, that wouldn't have happened. We wouldn't have the Yelps. We wouldn't have, you know, there's a lot of, of social media that is all about upvoting and downvoting and, and, and uh, online reputation and things like that. So that's number two. And then number three, this is a business one. You know, we understand uh, this is common now. Like Facebook owns nothing. Everything that is valuable on Facebook is created by us. Now, Facebook is the one that's getting rich off of it. But think of what a bizarre sort of through the looking glass concept that is, that Facebook is, is a media platform that owns and produces nothing. It is simply the platform. And eBay proved that out for commerce, but also a little reputationally because eBay was eBay famously never housed the goods, never took possession of the goods, never. And by that reputation system, they even outsourced the like verifying that like, you know, transactions were, were on the up and up and things like that. So eBay was we live in a world where there's all of these platforms that own nothing except for whatever the activity is that its users do inside of or on top of it. eBay was the first company not to prove it, they weren't even the first to do it, but they were the first one to prove that was capable at a scale that would be a meaningfully multi-billion dollar business. How will technology and politics intersect in the 2020 election? Woo! Boy, I'm not remotely qualified to comment on that one. I would say that is interesting right now because think of the last several elections like shoot, I, I'm old enough to remember like how the 2000 election was was considered to be the first tech election because, you know, things were happening online. And then the, the blogs in 2004, you had the rise of the, the Dean candidacy that came from the blogs. And, you know, shoot, we have uh, right wing blogs that for a time were running the White House <laughs> in, the, in the form of, of Steve Bannon. And, but also, you know, 2008 famously was the Obama campaign. A lot of people credited their ability to use things like Facebook to, to mobilize and things like that. Obviously, depending on what you think happened in 2016, social media had some sort of an impact on the election. What I find interesting right now is that all of those things are reactive. It's like, okay, technology is here. Some people are making use of them, but a lot of it is like, well, how did how did technology shape or change? Look at AOC. I think we, we're going to start seeing happening, and this is probably nothing more complicated than just generational turnover. You're going to have people that understand how to use technology natively in political ways. And basically, until very recently, not a lot of politicians were at all conversant in that. AOC, for whatever you think of her politics or whatever, like she's proficient at using Instagram in the way that a very popular Instagram influencer would do. And that's not an insignificant thing. You know, there are people that, you know, have 40 million followers and, and uh, you know, have $100 million careers and, and, and things like that based on understanding how to use social media and things like that. So I think that what we're going to see maybe in this election is people that are going to understand how to use that sort of stuff natively. Are there any trends that you are noticing in the modern internet that you think are underrated? I think it's underrated. Let me go this way. I think that the way that a lot of pundits and media analysts or technology analysts 
have been looking at technology lately has been missing the forest for the trees here. Sorry to use that phrase the second time on the, in the same episode. But when all of these scandals, these Facebook scandals happen, it's like, uh, our data, our data. Why does everyone want our data? I don't think you can comprehend, and tech companies have, and they don't want to be, they don't want to publicize this because they understand that it would make people feel icky. But especially the internet of things is happening in the next decade or two decades or so. We're going to be in a world 30 years from now where it's impossible not to know absolutely everything. Every single thing in the world, every event, every item, every it, it's a, it's going to be a data point that's going to be measurable. Now that can be that can be good. That means sensors on bridges will tell engineers right before they're about to collapse and things like that. But that also is going to mean that, you know, one of the stories I did on the Right Home podcast this week was Amazon buying uh, Eero. And so suddenly, Amazon will have access to all of the data flowing in and out of your house. And then the very next story that I had to do was a story about how Google and Amazon are asking, forcing actually, Internet of Things producing companies to do things like every time a user turns on or off their smart light bulb, let us know. Tell us when they turn and turn off their, their smart light bulbs and things like that. Well, Again, if everything in my house is telling you everything about me, there are positives to that in the sense that like, look, Apple and insurance companies are buying Apple watches for people because if they can track your health data, they can determine like how active you really are. And maybe that'll lower your insurance costs. It'll lower medical costs overall because less trips to the hospital, positive things. But then also, you know, why do you need to know what time I go to bed every night? What can that tell you about me? Well, it can tell anybody anything about everything. Like when you think of self-driving cars, one possible value, something that could valuable that could be sold is how often does this household that lives in this zip code go to this particular store? Well, you know who would want to buy access to that information? Hedge funds that would know, that would have like exact to the person data points of, boy, it looks like Gap is really in trouble. Like no one's shopping there anymore. Like, so I, I, I think it's what people are missing is that the real value, the plastics or the gold or the oil is what technology, the value of technology is data. It's data about you and right. It's being used to sell advertisements to you and things like that. But, but it's also, it's, it's data about everything you do and, and everything that everyone does. And so the question is, what sort of a world does that make? A more efficient one, certainly, you would hope but also a dystopian one. I don't know. Like I, I'm not sure people understand that this, it's probably inevitable. It's going to be impossible not to know anything, but people are misunderstanding how valuable that's going to be for basically every company in the world. There's a bias to believe that that world will lead us to at this 1984 style dystopia or this brave new world style dystopia why is our public sentiment biased towards the negative futurist outcome? Well, because it's it's new. Well, I mean, that's the most obvious knock against any Ludditism. I don't like it because it's new. But to be fair to that perspective, which I don't necessarily share, uh, I share it in, in some specific instances, but to be fair to that perspective, it is upending very basic cultural and societal expectations of how culture and society function, where our families exist as these little nuclear independent entities inside of a larger culture. 
versus everything is going to be meshed together and everything is going to be out in the open. That is not something that we as incredibly social primates are even in our brain wiring wired to accept, you know, I think people buck against and and are, are fearful of like you're describing it, this 1984 or Panopticon future, because almost everything culturally and socially that, that runs counter to everything culturally and socially that we've been acculturated to expect. I don't think obviously that it's going to turn out that way. But, you know, I totally understand that that, that because that is something that it's hardwired into us to see a snake and be fearful of it, right? I think that it is hardwired into us to be fearful of people looking in my window, right? And so that's applicable even to things like like technology, like like when I turn or turn off my light bulb at night, right? What have you learned about conducting an intelligent podcast interview that you can share with me? <laughs> <laughs> well, the the priest e- either the, e- either in this interview or in your previous podcast experiences. Well, that presumes that I conduct intelligent podcast uh, interviews. Uh, okay, real quick though, because I have s- super simple answers for this one. A, B, over prepared. Every time I do an interview, I end up using maybe thirty percent of the questions that I come up with because you have to know what you what you want to talk about. But then don't be married to the things that you want to talk about. Over prepare. Have more questions than you'll ever use, so that when you start talking, if you actually listen, good interviews go in the direction that they're meant to go in and that they should organically go in. And so, if you're over prepared. Then when the dire- when the interview goes in the direction that's this thirty percent of questions in- instead of that thirty percent of questions like you thought it would, you can go too. So over prepare, listen, and then listen. I- I've listened to Howard Stern my entire life, and his precept is is you know don't stand in the way of good radio. So if if the conversation goes somewhere that you don't expect but it's interesting, like trust it. Be willing to throw your notes out and go where the good radio is, which is good interesting conversations. Why is Joe Rogan successful despite the fact that he doesn't seem to prepare? Yeah, because he's curious. You know what I mean? Because he's intellectually omnivorous. Like he's always wanting to learn new things. So that's a superpower because it means that he can sit down as long as you're interesting. If Joe brought on a boring person, and by the way, I have heard boring interviews on that show. And guess what? I haven't heard those people back again. But if Joe can find someone interesting to talk to, Again, he's willing to listen because if someone takes him down an interesting road, he's willing to go there too. He's he's dying to go down that interesting road with whoever that person might be. What will your next book be? We are currently shopping a history of nerds and nerd culture. And I'm I'm not going to elaborate any more than that, but it's going to be a history of nerd culture. Okay. Brian McCullough, thank you for coming on the show and for producing so much useful and high quality media about technology. It's been really helpful for me. Oh, well, thank you so much. This podcast is brought to you by Wix.com. Build your website quickly with Wix. Wix code unites design features with advanced code capabilities, so you can build data-driven websites and professional web apps very quickly. You can store and manage unlimited data. You can create hundreds of dynamic pages, you can add repeating layouts, make custom forms, call external APIs, and take full control of your site's functionality using Wix code APIs and your own JavaScript. You don't need HTML or CSS. 
With Wix Code's built-in database and IDE, you've got one-click deployment that instantly updates all the content on your site, and everything is SEO-friendly. What about security and hosting and maintenance? Wix has you covered, so you can spend more time focusing on yourself and your clients. If you're not a developer, it's not a problem. There's plenty that you can do without writing a line of code, although, of course, if you are a developer, then you can do much more. You can explore all the resources on the Wix code site to learn more about web development wherever you are in your developer career. You can discover video tutorials, articles, code snippets, API references, and a lively forum where you can get advanced tips from Wix code experts. Check it out for yourself at wix.com slash s-e-d. That's wix.com slash s-e-d. You can get 10% off your premium plan while developing a website quickly for the web. To get that 10% off the premium plan and support Software Engineering Daily, go to wix.com slash s-e-d and see what you can do with Wix code today. Wow! Wow! 